There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some truths are stranger than fiction, and some stories almost seem too far-fetched to take place in the real world. On December 1st, 1987, a young man brutally took the lives of a pregnant woman and her children. And while his crimes were horrific, it was his bizarre behavior beforehand that cemented his name in the history of folklore and ghost stories. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Born on May 16, 1970, Daniel J. LaPlante lived with his mother and stepfather in Townsend, Massachusetts, having lived a mysterious childhood that many would find unimaginable. Though much of his childhood and his run-ins with the law were kept under wraps due to his age, we do know that the young boy suffered from some serious psychological and sexual abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life, with his father being his main abuser who used torment, physical, emotional, and sexual, to punish his son for any indiscretion. Because of this, Daniel struggled in school both academically and socially, which was made worse by his dyslexia, and had very few friends throughout his formative years. Those who knew him called him weird and creepy, and by the time he was a teenager, his abnormal behavior and lack of hygiene landed him in the office of a trained psychiatrist. Shortly after diagnosing him with hyperactive disorder, this doctor, like most of the adults in his life, started to make sexual advances towards the troubled boy. With no direction and absolutely no guidance, Daniel began to work as a small-time thief who spent his evenings breaking into homes of Townsend citizens and making off with their valuables. This, too, began to escalate, and by the time he was 15, he was leaving behind objects and moving around items inside of the homes he burgled to offer a level of mental torment to his crimes. Eventually, the break-ins became all about the mind games and very little about the actual theft. Daniel was, had anyone taken a moment to notice, clearly spiraling in a dangerous direction. Enter the Andrews family, who, along with Daniel, would become forever known for a bizarre chain of events that would cement themselves in the history of the supernatural. In 1986, Daniel LaPlante somehow obtained the phone number of a family living in the local area, a home belonging to widower Brian Andrews and his two teenage daughters, Annie and Jessica. One day, Danny called the home and, after claiming he got their number from a friend who went to school with them, engaged in a conversation with the Andrews sisters. He claimed he was good-looking, athletic, blonde, and well-educated, and asked if he could take Annie on a date one evening. She excitedly agreed, but was soon sent into shock when she opened her door only to find Daniel LaPlante, a boy very much so the opposite of what he described. Feeling as though she could not back down, Annie decided to go on the date with Daniel, and the pair went to a local fair. The date only lasted an hour before Annie made an excuse to get home and wrote off the evening as simply a bad date. Now, during their short time together, Annie revealed to Daniel that their mother had recently lost her battle with cancer, something he took great interest in and continually steered the conversation towards. He wanted to know everything about the death, how it happened, how she felt, and how much her mother suffered, 
which was probably why Annie wanted to end their day early and vowed to never see the young boy ever again. Putting the bizarre evening out of her mind, Annie continued on with her life. That's when something strange started to happen in the Andrews home. One night, still raw with grief, Annie and Jessica decided to try a seance to try and communicate with their deceased mother. The communication was unsuccessful, and writing off the whole event, the girls decided to call it quits and go off to bed. When they did, they were shocked to hear rhythmic knocking against the walls as they slept. The girls were shocked and completely in awe that they were able to reach their mother on the other side and spent the evening speaking back and forth with their unseen matriarch, asking all of the questions they had desperately wanted to know the answers to since she had passed. This kept up for several evenings, and eventually things started to happen that led the girls to believe the spirit could not be that of their beloved mother. The knocks began disturbing their sleep, and before long, the girls started to notice that small things in the house seemed to be disappearing at an alarming rate, with furniture being moved from one side of the room to the next. Realizing that this could not be the work of their mother, Annie and Jessica began to worry that they had unlocked something dangerous on the other side. So they told their father, who believed that all of the strange happenings in the house were at the hands of his own daughters. They denied his suspicions and insisted that they must have unknowingly allowed a vengeful ghost into their home. Brian wasn't having any of it and assumed the girls were acting out as a result of his wife's death. Then things escalated. One evening in January of 1987, the strange knocking began while the girls were staying alone in the house. But... This knocking was a bit different than what they had grown used to. All of the other times, the knocking seemed to come from the halls of the Andrews' home, but this time, it was coming from the basement where they performed their seance. Armed with a kitchen knife, the sisters made their way towards the sounds, and as they crept into the basement of the house, they saw written on the walls in blood red, I'm in your room, come and find me. Completely horrified, the girls fled from the house and straight into their neighbor's home, where they waited until Brian came home. They told him everything they had just seen, and still believing they were the ones to blame, Brian ordered Annie and Jessica to undergo counseling to help with their clearly overbearing grief. They did so, and several weeks later, the knocks began once again. Again, following the sound into Annie's bedroom, this time they were greeted with the phrase, I'm back. Find me if you can, written in red on the walls. Again, they ran to the neighbor's home, and again, Brian blamed their emotional state for the bizarre behavior. Wanting to prove to them once and for all that nothing was in the house, Brian marched over to their home and, almost immediately, noticed the house was in much more of a disarray than what the neighbors and the girls had told him about. It was then that he realized maybe the girls had been telling the truth. Walking further into his home, Brian was greeted with a sight that I think he would have never forgotten. In Annie's room, standing opposite of another bloody message that read, Marry Me, was a slender figure wearing his deceased wife's clothing, a blonde wig, and makeup. In his hands was a hatchet. A struggle between Brian and the supposed ghost took place, and the figure was able to disappear into thin air. At which point, Brian, realizing the error of his ways, called the police to search the home. Confused as to how he disappeared so quickly, police started searching the Andrews home and found that behind the cupboard in Annie's room 
lay a secret hatch that was cut into the wall. Lifting up the hatch, the police found a teenage boy dressed in Mrs. Andrews' clothing, curled up into the small space. The boy was Annie's disaster date, Daniel LaPlante. He was immediately arrested and officers continued their search of the house. Soon they realized that Daniel had been living in the walls of the Andrews' home since the night he took Annie out on their date. Using the passageways and squeezing himself into tight spaces to become the knocking specter the girls were so convinced was the spirit of their own mother. Peepholes dotted the walls for easy viewing, passageways carved out for access to every single space in the home, and tunnels helped to make sure that he could be with Annie no matter where she was in the comfort of her home. Daniel LaPlante, because of his age, was placed in a juvenile facility where he stayed for about nine months before being released in October of 1987. The following month, he went straight back to theft and stole two handguns out of a neighbor's home. On December 1st, 1987, Daniel broke into the home of the Gustafson family, just about a half a mile away from where he was living. Andrew Gustafson was at work that evening of the break-in, so when Daniel came into the house, he was greeted with an unaware, unprotected, and pregnant 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson and her two small children, Abigail and William. When Andrew came home, he found his wife lying face down on their bed, pillow covered in blood and showing signs that she had been raped before being shot in the head at point-blank range. He called the police, who then found the bodies of Abigail and William lying in two different bathtubs. William, who was only five years old, had been drowned upstairs while his sister, eight-year-old Abigail, was drowned downstairs. It didn't take long for police to land on Daniel LaPlante as a suspect, but when they went to arrest him, he was nowhere to be found. A manhunt to find the once specter turned murderer quickly ensued, and police warned everyone that the young man was surely armed and dangerous. While everyone was on the lookout for him, Daniel took a chance and kidnapped a woman in her car, but she somehow managed to escape. He was found two days later hiding in a dumpster, and a quick once-over of his clothing found a strand of Abigail Gustafson's hair on his sock confirming all of the suspicions the police had about his guilt. A year after the murder, Daniel LaPlante was sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of the Gustafsons. For the next 26 years, Daniel would make multiple attempts to sue the courts for violating his rights. On one occasion, he claimed he was a practicing Satanist and that the prison was not allowing him to carry out his Satanic rites. On March 22, 2017, after just under three decades behind bars, a resentencing hearing took place at the Middlesex Superior Court in Walburn, Massachusetts, where Daniel asked for a sentence reduction on the grounds that he was a juvenile when he was sentenced and was never given a meaningful opportunity to re-engage with society. However, due in large part to his complete lack of remorse, Daniel was given the maximum sentence of 45 years and will remain behind prison walls for the rest of his life. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on December 2nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>